Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, of a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is... Jason Rosenbaum. And... Joe Manis. And our special guest this week... Scott Sifton. Uh, recur- a recurring guest on our show. Only uh, the second time, though. He hasn't joined the three-time club, that's, though. That is true. That's right. He's a state senator from... Um, South and southwest parts of St. Louis County. And and something has changed since he was last on. He is also an AG candidate. Yeah, the announced Democratic candidate for attorney general. So hopefully, I mean, we don't know the future. You may not win that statewide race. But if you do, hopefully you'll be unlike the current office holder and come on the show while you're in office. You know what? I will, let's go ahead and make that my first campaign <laughs> promise of the attorney Listen, general campaign. I will be happy. Yeah, well, to, let's, I, well, I, 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 love, I love Chris Coster to death. I have a lot of respect for him, but apparently he is not coming on our show. I don't love any candidate or politician at all, but but I am talk- I, I'm the one who Coster personally told that yeah. while he, and he's a nice, he's an okay politician, but just okay. But right. he was at least up front. Yes, anyways. I got I got to give yes. him credit. He said no way. <laughs> All so right. you can take that to the bank. <laughs> anyways, let's let's so move I, on. I, I think later on in the show we're going to get to your attorney general race. But I think first we would like to talk a little bit about what's coming up before that, which is the upcoming session. Sure. Um, you know, you are in the extreme minority. Uh, what do you see as your party's role coming up here? What What are some of your priorities? Well, a lot of the answer to that lies in how the Senate functions. And I, I you know, we people frequently say a lot of the issues that we tackle are not so much partisan as sometimes regional. And, and what I would say mm-hmm. is, the Senate functions, or at least is intended to function, on the merit of the issue. And I, I would just say, you, you know, spend spend a week in the body, and you will have a very difficult time tracing any ideological, philosophical consistency across what happens. You have different people with different uh, views on different issues. Somebody who's killing a, a bill on, on one day of one senator, maybe that person's biggest proponent the next. And so uh, it's... Um, you know, we take our role very seriously. Um, a lot of times when a bill leaves the Senate, there's a very good chance it's going to become law, and and we try to make sure that we get it right. Have you, have you caucused, have you been, how much contact have you been in with your fellow Democrats so far? I mean, we, we're in contact frequently. I mean, it depe- depends yeah. on the issue, but I mean, it, it, throughout the interim, yes. I mean, we, mm-hmm. uh, and not just the Democrats. I mean, uh, senators from across the aisle will visit and sometimes meet on issues in the interim uh, in an effort to try to uh, get ahead of things going into session. A very good example of that uh, would be the transfer bill last year, uh, where the in- substantially the entire St. Louis regional delegation, Democrat and Republican, sat down mm-hmm. at the table not once but three times. Uh, to try to come up with a consensus starting point on that issue, and we did so successfully. Now, since you're in your second term, correct? First. 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 Well, I'm, I'm sorry. He's actually in his third year of his first correct. term. Correct. Yes. You're right. Yeah. And so you're, since you're running for attorney general, you're not going to be running for election. So there's going to be all these political maneuverings going on at the same time you're in session this time. Uh, I'm interested in what how you see your role in in this coming session and how you think the political dynamics may play out? Uh, my role is going to be the same as it's been. I, I think I have built a reputation as a fair and reasonable advocate, uh, somebody that people can work with across the aisle. 
uh, somebody who's going to stand up for my constituents. And, and, and I will tell you, I'm going to represent the people of the 1st District the same way I would have regardless of, of you know what race I'll be running in 2016. I have a job to do for them, and I take that very seriously. We have a lot of terribly important issues coming up that will make an Im- immense impact uh, on the communities that I represent, and I take that very seriously. Now, before seriously. we kind of look forward into the session, I want to look back to veto session when you played a, a pretty substantial role in one of the, the bills, and that was legislation to override a, a 72-hour waiting period for abortions. Now, you were one of the people that filibustered it, um, and they used the rare procedural maneuver, the previous question, to end the filibuster the first time in seven years. Yes. Uh, what was kind of your mentality going into that debate, and what was your reaction to when they used the previous question, and how do you think that's going to impact the rest of the session? Well, well first of all, it was, a, it was a bad bill. It was a terrible bill, and we fought long and hard against it in regular session in the first place and um, filibustered extensively then as well. This is a bill that would basically say a a rape victim on a college campus on the other side of the state would either have to drive four to six hours to St. Louis twice in one week uh, or stay overnight uh, three nights in St. Louis if she wanted to have the consulting physician uh, be the physician uh, performing the operation. And I believe that that is simply an undue burden on a woman's right to choose. I believe it's bad policy. I don't believe it will limit abortions. I actually think in some ways it could potentially increase them. And I, I, I expressed all those reasons during the debate, both during regular session and veto session. So we we were always of a mindset that if we could stop that bill, we would. Um, during regular session, uh, the filibuster was broken off when, in essence, um, Republicans made it known that they were willing to stop some other bills that Democrats wanted stopped uh, in exchange for allowing that one to move forward. I was still inclined to keep up the fight, but frankly, at that point, we did not have uh, – one person cannot do it. Uh, you know, Wendy Davis was able to do it with a, with an eight-hour window in Texas or however long she stood up. We had 96 hours to go in session at that point, and we still didn't have the transfer bill done. And I was just in a position where I had to uh, had to make sure that we got the transfer bill passed um, and was not going to be able to stand and talk for 96 hours. Uh, going into veto session, Correct. yes. Going into veto session, we had a different set of affairs, um, and it was an unusual scenario where uh, it takes 23 votes to override. Um, we had reason to believe uh, that at a certain point in time, not long. Uh, into the morning hours of the second day of veto session that uh, the majority might very well lose that, lose 20, that, that, that 23rd, 23rd vote. vote. And that changed the dynamic. And and what I will say, as far as lessons going forward, historically the, the minority response to a previous question has been to be very, very difficult going forward. Um, I think in this circumstance, um, I, I think to – with all of the important issues that we need to take up in 2015 from school transfers to issues related to Ferguson to um, everything that's going to be on our plate, uh, I think to lock the building down over the fact somebody had vacation plans uh, is not a reasonable thing to do. That said, um, we will we, we always reserve our right as members of the minority to use the procedural devices uh, at hand to 
protect the interests and views of the minority and, and of our constituents. And, and that's not something – that's not just something that members of the minority party do. From time to time, members of the majority party do that as well. Uh, and that, that is a fundamental part of how the Senate works. And I, I think it is important – I think it is important to preserve the functioning of the body uh, in its normal course of business as best we can. Now, um, with that – with the abortion bill, just one quick question. <clears throat> Planned Parenthood decided not to challenge it in court, although there were some who thought that they might have a decent chance. As a lawyer yourself and also as one who was one of the major players in, against the bill, why do you think that there isn't a legal challenge? I mean, now M- Missouri is one of only three states uh, with that such a long uh, waiting period. I think if you look at the history of Eighth Circuit rulings post KCV Pennsylvania, which now we're establishes about the Eighth the, Circuit Court yes, of Appeals, yes, the federal circuit that would that would pass upon any litigation of the Missouri statute ultimately in federal court. Um, if you look at the history in the Eighth Circuit since the undue burden test was established in KCV uh, Pennsylvania in the early nineties. Um, I don't. I'm not sure the Eighth Circuit's ever found anything that's an undue burden, uh, and I, I think there's concern that um, if this is an issue that uh, is going to get litigated, there might be better places to do it than than here. Uh, I, I can't speak for anybody else on that, but that's my understanding of what uh, of why you may not have seen a lawsuit. That said, I firmly believe that uh, as a matter of law. Uh, the, the bill that we put on the books in Missouri last year does constitute an undue burden under KCB Pennsylvania. I want to ask a broader political question because one of the things that I respected about both you and former Senator Lemke in your race is I don't think either of you tried to pretend that you were somebody that you weren't. I think you ran, you know, you, you had, you were for abortion rights and for gay rights when you were a House member and you didn't try to hide that when you were uh, running for Senate. Senator Lemke had, you know, fairly, fairly conservative social views he didn't try to run away from that at all. Right. And, you know, in the 24th district race, you saw a candidate, a Democratic candidate that didn't run away from her record either, Jill Shoup, and she ended up winning. Yet you had two other candidates who are running on your party's ticket, Jeff in the, Orta in the and Ed Schieffer, who are doing pretty much the exact opposite and basically emphasizing their socially conservative views to the sense that they were basically running away from their party. Now, you supported both of those candidates. I believe you gave a financial contribution to Jeff Rorta. I mean, was it a mistake for them to take that posture, given that they both lost so badly? I think that they both, as representatives, did their best job to represent the the district that elected them and the community that they served. And I think that, uh, to your point, they are who they are. Uh, Ed Schieffer's who he is. Jeff Rorta's who he is. And I, I, I don't think uh, they would have been doing themselves or their voters a service by trying to be something they were not. And, you know, we in the Democratic Party have a big tent, and uh, there is room uh, within our party under our banner for disagreement on some of the issues of the day. There always has been and there will always have to be uh, if we're going to maintain the coalition it takes to be competitive in Missouri. Now, so I, yeah, I, I think I, I don't think people accused Ed Schieffer of that because he's had a pretty consistent yeah. voting record. Yeah. There were definitely people who thought Rorda in his fourth term 
was basically voting more conservative than he did in his first three terms, though. Did, gotta, you, did you hear that as well? And, and I have to tell you, I, I did not. And I have to tell you, I know Jeff Rorta well. We actually um, reside in the same home in Jefferson City during session, although I guess he's making different arrangements. But uh, 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 Jeff has always been right of center on some issues that most Democrats are left of center on, and he's been pretty consistent about that in my in my experience. That said, uh, oddly enough, I actually never served with him in the House because the term that I served in the House was after his defeat, defeat in 2010. Paul Wheeler, yeah. So, but what Jason's bringing up does does bring up the broader question. Uh, regardless of their individual views, the fact is that uh, Democrats in Missouri head into the next session and heading into 2016 in extremely small minorities in the House and Senate. And the what what is important, okay, in 2010, the Democrats made some losses. In 2012, at least on the statewide level, the Democrats gained some ground. And in the Senate. But now 20... 14, they got hammered, except in a couple places. And the difference is that in 2014, they actually tried. You had uh, Coster and McCaskill and you and others pouring money and, and, and really working hard for other candidates. And in many cases, such as Rodas, it didn't, it didn't seem to, to help. So looking t- for 2016, especially since you may very well be on the statewide ballot, do you have thoughts about what the what the Democratic Party in Missouri needs to do to um, get in a stronger position so it doesn't get really hammered statewide in 2016? Well, I think it's the same thing that we've always had to do, and that is make it clear to working families, to to parents of school-aged children, and to seniors that we are going to advocate um, that we are going to advocate uh, for them, for their interests, for for financial security, for for quality education, for good, uh, well-paying jobs with benefits and for secure retirement. And I think um, for whatever reason, uh, when the narrative gets away f- uh, from that, uh, it tends not to go as well for Democrats. And I, I think we need to remind people what we stand for. Is that a problem? Well, I, you know, we are where we are. I mean, we, we've had the year that we've had. And uh, uh, the lessons of 2014 – um, and specifically, the, the, of the last four off-cycle elections, and that's 2014, 2010, uh, 06, and 02, three of them have gone quite poorly for Democrats. 06 went quite well. Um, and, and all I would suggest – and at the same time, Democrats have won, I think, 80 percent of all statewide contests in Missouri since 1992 – uh, so there, there is something going on here, uh, and, and I will say I think in particular in off-year elections we probably need to do a better job of communicating with Democrats and 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 uh, working with um, the people who we we um, who, who we know share our values, uh, but who who might be there in a presidential year and, and might not be in an off year. So you've said that you don't want to shut down the state legislature because. You guys have some serious stuff to work on. You brought up Ferguson. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. What are the things that you think that the state legislature can do? Let's get to policy in just a moment because I do want to speak to policy. But the first, most important thing we can do is our job as a deliberative body to take up proposals regarding all of the policy issues implicated by Ferguson and have the debate in the building where the the debate is meant to be had. I mean. For, 
ever since this happened, you know, we have all spent one day together in veto session. Mm-hmm. We have not, um, as a legislature, had the opportunity to take up in a public decision-making forum, mm-hmm. you know, what, if anything, we're going to do in, in light of the events in, in Ferguson. And so I, I, first and foremost, I'm just looking forward to getting to that place uh, here in a couple of weeks uh, and at last beginning the public policy discussion in a public policy forum uh, as opposed to, um, you know, where we just we haven't been able to meet. I mean, we haven't met. Uh, that said, policy-wise, you know, you've seen a number of bills that have been pre-filed. Mm-hmm. Um, more bills were have been coming in uh, almost by the day uh, on this subject. And you know, we're, we're going to have a lot of these debates. I mean, Missouri's use of force statute is pretty clearly out of step with United States Supreme Court precedent. It was established that the grand jury was given a statute at the front end that then had to be taken right. out of the binder. And, and you know, here, here's the law you actually need to apply. Um, you know, whether or not the majority will allow us to address that, I don't know. But I, I, I kind of think that Missouri law should reflect um, the, the law of the land. And I, I think it's a problem when we have a statute um, that that grand jurors are being provided that is simply not the law <laughs> under Supreme Court precedent. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, everything from um, body cameras to other police equipment to uh, how and when special prosecutors are used to how and when grand juries are used. Uh, and the other piece, of course, is the municipal court system. Uh, and I have filed legislation on mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and and. From what I recall from reading, the difference from Senator Schmidt's bill is I guess it would direct some of the excess revenue to the county pool system, basically. Let, let me just explain. Right now we have the Max Creek Law, which says that for a municipality uh, that municipalities are free to write as many tickets as they want if they think they need to do so for, for traffic safety purposes. But the goal of the Max Creek Law was to remove the revenue profit uh, incentive for these municipalities to be writing tickets essentially not for safety purposes but for monetary purposes. So uh, we recently lowered the, the threshold to 30 percent. A municipality can get up to 30 percent of its revenue from traffic fines. Anything in excess of that, they can still write the ticket, but they have to fork over the money to the state and then uh, under the statute that governs, it winds up going to the county schools. Uh, Senator Schmidt's bill would lower that 30 percent threshold to 10 percent. And I I think lowering that threshold will be part of the conversation this year. And I I anticipate that we will probably do something to lower the threshold. Whether it gets to 10 percent or not remains to be seen. Uh, But I I think that's going to be very much in place. Senator Dempsey sponsored the last decrease from from 35 down to 30, and he wanted 20 at the time. So Mm -hmm. I I think it's pretty clear what direction that's that's heading in. But what I would would characterize – the current Max Creek law as removing the carrot by taking away the profit incentive. What my bill does is add a stick and say if you as a municipality, even if you're handing over everything in excess of 30 percent, if you're still collecting more than half of your budget in traffic fines, enough is enough. And and, and there are – I'm aware of three municipalities in St. Louis County that – based on the information available to me at least, are, are collecting more than half of their revenue and traffic fines. Vanita Terrace, Calverton Park, excuse me, Calverton Park, and Bella Villa, which is in my district. Uh, and, and what I would say, you know, when I first ran for the House in 2010, you know, knock on 100 doors, talk to 40 people, ask them what's important to them. 
um, eh, 10 or 20 percent are going to say in that in and around that neighborhood that traffic enforcement is a concern to them. And now, yeah, but now, does this create a problem? One thing that um, I've heard from some other uh, legislative leaders is that while the focus is on North St. Louis County and some of these small towns, the Max Creek Law was prompted by a rural community yes. and that there's an awful lot of rural communities uh, that would be affected by this, and a lot of the rural it, legislators. It would be more than are, just rural. Well, I mean, ten percent would probably affect every city in the state. Very yeah, possibly, but, but I mean, yeah. the chances of the ten percent thing getting right, I, th- I think, is nil. But it might. I, I think you'll see it lower. But that's a, what my bill does is different, and it is St. Louis County specific. Right. My bill says if you're getting half of your revenue from or more from traffic fines, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you don't need your St. Louis your, your share of the St. Louis County uh, sales tax pool, mm-hmm. and and so it it it, it creates a disincentive to cross that 50% threshold. And I'm flexible on 50%, by the way. I mean, I, I think uh, Pine Lawn is maybe at 48. There's some right. other – That's a, there really is kind of a break point. There's not many between 40 and 50. Uh, so we'll see, uh, you know, in the event it gets heard, we'll, we'll hear the testimony and see where it goes in the legislative process. I just think that um, – I, I just think that under current law, there is still no upper limit on what these municipalities can collect, and I th- I'm not sure that's the best public policy. I think we can do better. So this is the me- mechanism that I came up with, and maybe somebody will come up with another one. We'll see. Do you think that's going to be the prime um, issue dealing with Ferguson that's going to be dealt with during a legislative session? I mean, just in a in a general sense, whether it's your bill or somebody else's. You know, we'll see. I mean, I I think it is clear that there are going to be a number of different proposals that are made. Many of them will be heard. Uh, Some of them may not. Uh, Many of them will pass. Many of them may not. Uh, It remains to be seen. That's what we have the legislative process for, uh, and that's what we're there to do is debate what, you know, what the response to this this, – series of events needs to be. And, and of course, it's not a Missouri-specific debate right now. It is a national debate. And um, it's unfortunate that it has been this long in coming. But uh, clearly, now is the time for us collectively to have the conversation about how we're going to address all these issues. Let's, let's talk a little bit about your candidacy for attorney general. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, looking back on Attorney General Chris Coster's time as AG, is there anything that you can think of that you would have done differently? You know, I I think General Coster uh, inherited a very well-run office from then Attorney General uh, Nixon, and I do think he has improved upon it. He's reorganized it in, in, in certain respects, and yeah, I might, I might organize it somewhat differently in, 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 in other respects, but, uh, you know, he, uh, he filed uh, the egg lawsuit. He lost the egg lawsuit. I, I suppose I would rather have an attorney general who's going to stand and fight for Missouri agriculture and run the risk of losing than one who's not going to fight the fight. Uh, I, I do think at the end of the day, you know, it cost taxpayer money, but I, I think it was a fight worth pursuing. Um, the, but I think he's done a great job. I think he's done a great job. Uh, I, I think he might even tell you in hindsight the recent uh, ethics changes that he made mm-hmm. uh, for the office um, in hindsight might have been done from day one. But th- the point is he's done it now, and now the onus is on the legislature hopefully to follow suit and uh, impose some of the same ethical restrictions on itself that Coster has uh, Im- adopted uh, voluntarily for the office. Now, before we get into your candidacy, is there any friction within the Democratic Party – that 
General Coster is opposed to campaign finance limits? Because I know you talk about how it's a big tent, but that's not a very common position within the Democratic Party. Is that causing any any problems when as he runs for governor at all? I, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, we all know. I mean, look, transparency is, is the the first most important aspect of any campaign finance system. Um, and look, under the old limits. Um, the reality is some of the same people that are writing million-dollar checks today were able to form any number of committees and make an end run around the law that way. So uh, regardless, there there's a fair debate to be had. There are different policy positions to be had on how you approach uh, campaign finance in this state. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that the attorney general's position uh, on that is uh, uh, is a problem among Democrats. Are, are you going to support him if he runs for governor? It's my intention to do so. Yes, even <laughs> if McCaskill runs against him. I, I, as it stands now, I have no knowledge of that happening. I'm not going to comment on on a primary that, as of sitting here today, doesn't exist. Fair so, enough. Fair I mean, enough. as of September, she said on the record yes. she was not. But minds can change. But looking at campaign finance, um, do you see any chance? of the General Assembly taking any sort of action on any aspect of campaign finance or ethics? We'll see. I, I will tell you, and I've been proceeding to end the practice of lobbyist gifts to legislators um, my time in the Senate. And, I, and I should I, point out the last time I ran the numbers, you were one of only 14 lawmakers who didn't accept any gifts from lobbyists this year. It was more like 25 a couple of years ago, but we've had yeah. a lot of faces change. But I'll say, too, that this year my bill actually has been expanded to include all statewide office holders, not just mm-hmm. the legislators. But what I would say is I, I, I believe there are Republicans that have basically said that ethics is on the table as long as it doesn't include campaign finance reform. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll be curious to see if there's not some backlash even on the Republican side of the aisle about donation limits in the environment we're dealing in uh, right now. There are you know, a few folks who may or may not be statewide candidates who um, – may find themselves on the outside looking in at uh, some of what's gone on. And I'll, I'll be very curious to see if, if there isn't some rethinking of that, at least in some quarters uh, on the other side of the aisle. But no, I, I, I would hope that we can get a gift ban done. Uh, I would hope that we can um, address some of the other campaign finance issues that are out there. Um, and uh, we'll see. I, I think the political climate in Jefferson City is such that if we're ever going to have donation limits again, it's probably going to have to come from the voters. Yeah. Well, and in fact, I mean, Democrats have been talking about this. Frankly, talk is cheap. Right. Uh, since since yeah. since yeah. I since mean, we, we, had the, we, we, we had the governor in his state of the state in yeah. 2013 yep. say, if you don't pass campaign finance limits, I'm going to leave a lead a ballot initiative, which nothing came of. Well, yet. well, and actually, the Democratic Party proposed this in 2011. In, yeah, in 2000. So I know I know that Senator McCaskill has said to, I guess, USA Today and others that she's going to do that. But frankly, the track record of making that pronouncement is not very good. It it hasn't happened. And I think in hindsight, you know, when when some folks started talking about that, we were at, you know, somewhere in the uh, low 70s in terms of seats in the House and maybe at 10 or 11 <laughs> seats in the Senate. And now here's where we find ourselves. So I that's true. I, I would suspect that there are probably some in hindsight who wish they had pushed it more sooner. Uh, whether or not that's part of the agenda in 16, um, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, I, I think certainly as a general matter, as, as you suggested earlier, Democrats generally support donation right. rights. 
Um, but that said, getting an initiative petition uh, passed is no small undertaking. Yes, it's, it would require millions of dollars of unlimited campaign <laughs> limits, which would be ironic, but well, continue. And, well, but then you also have the changing legal landscape and not just the Citizens United decision, but you've had a couple of other Supreme Court decisions that I think – fairly call into question the validity of just about any uh, donation restriction that you might pass. And so what what one could confidently pass into law by voter-approved initiative today probably looks quite a lot different than what might have passed muster six years ago just because of uh, evolving Supreme Court interpretations of free speech. Now, let's kind of segue into your campaign. Right. Um, so right now, you're the only Democrat who has announced that he's running. We're, we're, we're assuming that General Coster is not running for another term. I think that's pretty much a fact at this point. That he's running for governor. Um, why, did, why did you decide to run for this office? What do you think you'd bring to it, as, as Chris mentioned before? And what, what are you, kind of is your feeling of making it to the general and winning it again for the Democrats? Well, I, I'm running because I think I do a great job and I think I'm the best candidate. Um, it is a position of tremendous responsibility. Um, it is a position that you want somebody in who will do the right thing when nobody is looking and not constantly play politics while everybody's looking. That office handles the better part of 20,000 lawsuits over the course of a term. Uh, and while certainly some of them get notoriety, a whole lot of them don't. And there, as the recent national attention on the 50 men and women who serve as state's attorney general has demonstrated um, there's a lot that attorney general offices do that is not constantly in the public eye. Uh, I, I started my legal career in the office of attorney general. I did my law school clerkships uh, in that office under then attorney general Nixon working on uh, special prosecutions and criminal appeals as well as some civil litigation in my 15 years of private practice since at, at uh, the law firm that is now Hush Blackwell. I've handled a number of cases and issues that are directly relevant to what the Attorney General's office deals with on an almost daily basis. So before we get into any primary, there is a Republican candidate, Kurt Schaefer of Columbia, who is also in the state Senate. He's also yes. in the state Senate. He works for Lathrop and Gage. I, I covered his first campaign against then Senator Chuck Graham. He is an extremely fierce and combative campaigner. He's already put, I think, $500,000 of his own money in. I think you've put in about $100,000 of your own money. How do you think you stack up against him if you make it to the general? I think quite well, specifically on law enforcement issues. Uh, I think that Se Senator Schaefer has made some critical mistakes on law enforcement issues. That Such as? Well, I, you know, look, I mean, it's one thing for a licensed attorney to vote twice to purportedly nullify um, a federal law <laughs> with a state law. Um, it is another thing to vote three times to uh, to allow local police officers to be sued for enforcing gun laws. I think that's a problem. Look, Missouri supports the Second Amendment. There's no doubt of that. I mean, you only need to look back to August to see that our state supports the Second Amendment. Which is something I believe that he sponsored. Yes, yes. But but I, I think when you get to the point where your zeal uh, is getting in the way of what police officers need to do to keep our community safe is where Missourians check out. I think that's taking it too far. I don't think we need cops to be I – mean, 
law enforcement officers already have plenty to worry about in the line of duty and serving and protecting our community. They don't also need to be worried about uh, getting sued in civil court for, for doing their job and enforcing the law. Now, at this point, what's been the reception that you've received in your candidacy? And and we're going to mention there have been rumors, although uh, that St. Louis County Assessor Jake Zimmerman is looking at it and may he's a Democrat and may consider running, although he so far has not responded to my calls. But he put out a statement that said he was thinking about right. it. But yeah, what do you have you talked with him? If you have to face him in a primary, how would you two? kind of stack up against each other because you're kind of similar candidates in some ways. He and I have spoken. Uh, and, and again, I'm not going to get into a race that may or may not happen. This is not the time for, for Democrats mm-hmm. to be taking shots at each other in a race that may not even come to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, all I will say is that um, I do believe um, I'm the best Democrat uh, to run for attorney general in 2016. Uh, and, and I'll say it this way. You know, I... I I've actually never had an easy race now that I think about it. Not only have I had very tough races, <laughs> I've actually never had one that wasn't tough. Right. Uh, I right. am, the key race was, yeah. I, I am your, proven. I am battle-tested. Your, your second house race was, was tough? My Yes. Uh, my Well, I, I tell you what. Democrats, on average, performed at less than 50 percent in that district on that day in 2010. Yeah. I outperformed the party by five or six points. That's the only reason that, but I You're won. right. But just to kind of give our listeners what he's talking about, he ran – you ran for the House in the early 2000s against Catherine, Catherine Fairs and lost. You ran for a House seat in 2010 and won. You ran against – in a primary against Sue Shamel for the Senate and won. And you won, ran against – Jim Lemke in 2012, who I've called uh, one of the a Republican. a Republican who I've deemed as one of the best campaigners in the state, and won narrowly. So continue. I've, I've defeated a sitting incumbent, a full-term sitting incumbent Republican for the first time in a generation in a district where no candidate has received as much as 51 percent of the vote in the last three cycles. I mean, the last the Senate seat I now hold. We have not had a third-party candidate in, and we have also not had in a two-way race anybody get as much as 51 percent. So. Uh, I think that says something. I, I'll even say my school board races weren't all that easy. Even the one where the opponent dropped out because the name was still on the ballot and nobody thought there was a reason to show up and vote, and that's actually in some ways a more dangerous scenario <laughs> than it would have been. But well, one, Another question, though. This is kind of an ancillary question. Are you a little worried that – since you're not running for re-election in that Senate seat, that it could provide the opportunity for a Republican to pick it back up. I mean, we're not sure who the Democratic candidate's going to be. I could think of several Republican candidates, whether it be former Senator Lemke, if he wants to, or current Representative Marsha Hafner of Oakville, who would be very good candidates on the Republican side. Is there concern that that seat could be flipped again? There, Look, that seat has flipped twice in the last three cycles. The first Senate district is one that we're going to have to fight tooth and nail for no matter what happens and no matter who our nominee is, as my own experience demonstrates. There is no such thing uh, as a uh, as great confidence in that seat ever. You have to campaign uh, as hard as you possibly can every day and still know that, in my case, 817 people out of 89,740 are going to decide it. Uh, so. So, uh, of course, <laughs> of course, there is always the possibility that that seat can change hands. I will say I think we have a better chance of holding it if I'm the Democratic nominee for attorney general uh, above it on the ballot. Really? I, I, I think it would help to have uh, a local candidate on the statewide ballot for, for down-ballot Democrats, absolutely. 
All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there to close this out here. You can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter. Jay Rosenbaum. And Joe? At Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And Senator, I believe you can be followed on Twitter as well. At, at Scott Sifton. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.